0: What is up all my boos and ghouls? This is Brie, and you are listening to the Macaw Millennial. Uh, Unfortunately, I have not had a time to replace my microphone, so we are going with the iPhone method again. And I will say, I do feel like the last episode sounded a lot cleaner as a result, so let's see if we can keep that theme going, shall we? Speaking of last week, did everybody enjoy the Queen Mary? I know I was obsessed. I absolutely loved covering that, and I... Ugh, it just made me want to go back and check it out, especially now that they've done the remodel. I am so, so curious to see what they've done since the remodel. So, this week we are going to be doing a true crime, and I remember that I said that I wanted to cover something a little more mainstream um, that, you know, most people have heard about in the past. So, we are going to start our descent into the Black Dahlia. And,. I don't know about you guys, but this is a case that has always kind of fascinated me, and even more so the older I got and the more I was able to actually, like, look into the different theories and things that could have happened, and it's still kind of, like, I get it, but it also baffles me as to why the case has never been solved. I mean, there is literally mountains of evidence to work off of, and yet it's still labeled as an unsolved case to this day. However, before we get into all of that, I want to, you know, I, I'm somebody where I prefer to go back to the beginning, and I want to talk about the origins of the person and all that. um, So that way, When I look at them, I don't just see a victim. I see somebody who is a person with a history and a family, and I I feel like it helps to really humanize them when we circle back to the crime that was later committed against them. So with all that being said, let's jump right in. Um, Elizabeth Short, who was also known as Betty, Bet, or Beth by close friends and family, was born on July 29th in 1924 to Cleo and Phoebe Mae Short. And at the time, they had lived in Hyde Park of Boston, Massachusetts. And Elizabeth was actually the middle of five girls. Wow, that is as a lot of girls. Um, <laughs> she um, had grown up in Medford, Massachusetts, uh, which was just a few miles, you know, away from Boston. And Medford was described as like a nice little homey town, um, nothing too crazy. Um, and things kind of changed in 1929. So in 1929, her father had supported the family um, by building miniature golf courses, which I found kind of, Interesting, it's one of those jobs that I'm sure like everybody knows is a job, but not something that like when you're in school you would say like yeah I want to build miniature golf courses when I grow up. So I just thought that little thing was funny. Um, however, in 1929, the stock market crashed, and this caused Cleo to lose all of his money in the stock crash, and um, it was believed for a long time that he had actually committed suicide because in 1930, they found his car just abandoned on a bridge. And, you know, considering that he had just lost everything in the stock market, it wasn't outlandish to think that he had unfortunately ended it all because it was bleak and hopeless looking. Um, So at the time... Phoebe had um, moved into an apartment and she began working as a bookkeeper to provide for the five girls. Now this happened when Elizabeth was about six um, and I had also read that a few years later after leaving it was found that Cleo did not die and in fact he had just abandoned phoebe and the girls and moved to vallejo california and started over and he wrote a letter to apologize and phoebe rightfully told him to fuck right off like the badass she is she didn't need his help raising their five girls and props to her So when Elizabeth was little, she was often described as a beautiful little girl. She had these dark brown curls and this perfectly porcelain complexion and these bright blue eyes, and she was very beloved as a child um, by her neighbors and her classmates. Um, One neighbor named Dorothy Hernan had actually described her as just a good sweet funny young girl she didn't ever appear as stuck up Um, and she had also made the comment that truck drivers and men would stare when she would walk down the street and she often wondered that why there weren't more car accidents as a result of this down the street that she lived. But, you know, as lucky and fortunate as Elizabeth was to be esteemed as beautiful and unforgettable, um, she did have her share of problems. In fact, she was plagued by um, breathing issues like she had really bad asthma and just bouts of terrible bronchitis when she was little and it would just get really bad by the really cold winters in boston i've never been to boston in the winter so you guys will have to tell me i'm sure that it's cold i mean we all hear that but it would apparently just make this worse for her so around 16 years old her mother started to send her to stay in miami florida during the winters with her aunt and uncle and that was something that she would do for about three years or so I also want to add I did see one or two sources that mentioned that her um you know her asthma was so bad that she actually required lung surgery when she was 15 years old but again I only found it in like two sources and I found a lot of other sources that did not mention it so I you know take that with a grain of salt so growing up you know uh, with Elizabeth having these breathing problems and stuff like that, um, she had always nurtured the idea of wanting to go to Hollywood and become a famous actress. And actually, it was a passion that both her and one of her sisters shared. And, you know, family and friends would later comment after everything unfolded um, that they would talk about this all the time, about how they had plans to go off to Hollywood and become movie stars and have this glamorous leading life which, you know, I guess she did eventually try to go after. However, before we get to all that, um, let's take a step back and discuss a little bit more about her adolescence into becoming a teenager. So I did mention how she would uh, go and spend her winters in Florida with her aunt and uncle. Um, It was said that she would go and she would work as a waitress. And then usually by about springtime, they would send her back to Medford. And then, you know, this process will keep going for about three years or so. Um, By the time she turned 18, Elizabeth doctors had actually told her like, hey, your lung problems, your breathing issues, your asthma, it's all exacerbated by this really cold winter weather. It would really just be in your best interest to move somewhere that had a much like calmer climate where you really won't have to worry about these issues so much. And this kind of came at a perfect time for Elizabeth because ironically, Her father had also decided to move from Vallejo to Los Angeles, um, roughly around the same time frame. And, you know, with Elizabeth's dreams of wanting to go to Hollywood and become a big name star and all of that. And, you know, on top of the doctors telling her to do what's best for her health. It just could not have come at a more perfect time. Unfortunately, that really wasn't the way that it unfolded for her. Um, Elizabeth and Cleo did not get along very well, which I have to say, not very surprised when you turn around and abandon your kid at six years old. I can't imagine said kid is going to be like super thrilled to live with you. But, you know, we all do what we got to do to get out of the situations we need to get out of. Right. And again, this looked like a situation for Elizabeth that she just could not and would not pass up. However, her and her father only lasted about a month or two being able to live together before she said, screw it, I'm moving out, and she did just that. And in 1943, she got a job as a civilian clerk at Camp Cook, which was an army camp in California, in Lompoc to be specific. So when Elizabeth first got to the camp, um, she was described as a very shy, kept-to-herself sort of girl, 19-year-old. Her supervisor, Inez Keeling, would later say that um, when she first arrived, she never smoked, rarely drank, and she definitely did not speak to any of the soldiers. And then pretty quickly, all of that just turned on its head, and she suddenly was dating a different soldier several nights out of the week. She would continue to work at Camp Cook until about late August. Um, During that time, she was also voted the Camp Cutie, uh, which I thought was fitting given all the adoration that she had rained down on her as a child. Um, However, in September of 1943, she was arrested for underage drinking in Santa Barbara. She had actually been found uh, drinking with a group of soldiers at the restaurant called El Paso, and she was charged with juvenile delinquency for underage drinking. Ironically, during her arrest, she actually had made friends with her arresting officer, Mary Unifer, and she ended up staying with her for a little more than a week um, before she put her on a train to go back to Massachusetts. And this was confirmed because the officers had you know, she stated that she did later receive letters from Elizabeth letting her know, like, you know, she was back home in Medford and she was safe and blah, blah, blah. But again, this happened around September-ish, going into October, so we're getting close to the Boston winters again. So as winter time approached, she moved to Miami Beach in Florida, where she proceeded to work as a waitress. So while working in Miami, um, Elizabeth actually met a Major Matthew M. Gordon and in the end of December around 1944. Um, apparently, it was like love at first sight. They were super smitten with each other. They very quickly got engaged, but unfortunately, Major Gordon was killed in a plane crash on August 10th of 1945, um, which was just... Devastating because this was only days before the end of the Second World War. I can only imagine that Elizabeth was just absolutely devastated by this, <clears throat> which means it's no surprise that by July of 1946, she decided to go back to Los Angeles just to kind of reconnect with some old friends. And at the time, she also visited one of her old boyfriends, who was named Joseph Fickling. So it was said that Elizabeth and um, Lieutenant Joseph uh, Fickling had a very tumultuous relationship. It was a lot of on-again, off-again, a lot of bickering. It wasn't really very healthy for either of them. Uh, (laughs) Here I said them, them. I don't know how it came out that way. But anyway, um, he was soon kind of fortunately I guess sent to North Carolina to work as a commercial pilot and Elizabeth had decided that she wanted to stay out west. However he did still apparently send her money and tried to remain in touch. Um, The last letter of contact that he had actually received from Elizabeth was on January 8th a week before she had died. So now that we're getting a little closer to the timeline of the week leading up to you know her murder i want to take a step back and just reiterate elizabeth was a very sweet girl overall she maybe had a little bit of a wild streak that she didn't want to let on to she had a good family relationship um aside from what happened with her father you know um they did not hit it off great um she seemed like a girl who was just kind of pinballing around she every time she thought something was going to work for her it just turned all the way around and she had to start over and I do kind of feel for her in that regards that's a rough life and existence to have just constantly moving like a nomad from place to place and on to the next thing and it's a shame that she um that she had to live that way it really really is so um like I said with that let's go ahead and start moving towards the timeline of events the week leading up to her murder So about a month prior to Elizabeth's murder, she had met a businessman and a former military musician named Robert Red Manley. He was nicknamed Red because he was a redhead. It was reported that he had actually met Elizabeth for the first time a month prior to her being murdered. Um, She had been at a bus stop and he had approached her asking if she had needed a ride. And she at first was hesitant to talk to him. But again, because this was like the 1940s and people weren't as petrifying as they are today, if you will. um, She did eventually kind of warm up and, you know, did take the ride he was offering. At the time, Elizabeth had actually been in San Diego and he, um, you know, over the next month would kind of meet up with her on dates when he was in town and they would go out and have some drinks or get some dinner or, you know, whatever mood they were kind of feeling in. It got to a point that they were comfortable enough with each other that, you know, one night when Elizabeth had nowhere to stay, she contacted Manley, and they both stayed at a hotel for the night. He you know swore up and down to authorities that it was platonic they did not have any um sexual encounter at that time and um so yeah there was that that happened After this encounter, um, Short had asked him to give her a ride, which he did, and he took her to the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, which was on December 9th, which was the actual last recorded sighting of Elizabeth. The next six days before her body was found, it is a complete mystery as to where she was, what she did who she was with. That is a mystery that still goes on today. Theories have been floated, but nothing concrete has ever been brought to the surface. Red later reported to police that he had um, last seen Elizabeth wearing a black suit with a cardigan type sweater, and she had been wearing like a white blouse and some suede high heels, and she had also been wearing white gloves and a beige coat and carrying a black handbag. Um, that handbag will come up later because they do find it and evidence in it. However, um, not until much later. So apparently, Red had claimed that he was dropping her at the Biltmore because Elizabeth was going to meet up with her sister, Virginia, and he had dropped her off at around 6 p.m. that evening, and she was spotted in the lobby by um, some other patrons making phone calls, and it is, like I said, the last place confirmed that Elizabeth was seen alive. So, on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a young woman by the name of Betty Bersinger had been out just taking her three year old daughter for a morning walk, and it had been a nice day, um, you know, two weeks after the new year. And as they were coming around the bend, they happened to see a what she at the time thought was a mannequin sitting in an empty, un, it was like an undeveloped lot, which there were a lot of around this time back in Los Angeles. Um, and as she got closer, though, she was horrified to find that this was not a mannequin. And it was actually the naked body of Elizabeth Short. And we are going to get very into the grisly details of exactly how she looked because it is a very pertinent part to this case and what will help kind of solidify suspects later on. So, her body had been found lying face up with her head pointed north and her body was cut completely in the middle, severed in half, about 10 inches, um, and there was a noticeable tire track that had come up right against the curb closest to where they had found her. Um, There were also noted to be empty paper cement sacks lying around the, um, the empty lot where she was, which that'll also come up as being kind of important later on when we talk about the suspects. Now all things considering how gruesome um, this crime scene was, it appeared to officers that the body had been clean and washed. They could not find like bloody marks. I mean, given the situation and the circumstances of her body, you would expect there to be just blood everywhere, but there was not. Um, they also had found that there, the grass underneath of her body had been wet, which was important because that means she had been moved sometime after that morning, like the morning dew had already stained the grass before she was put there. And that helped investigators to kind of nail down a time frame of when her body had been dropped. So while we're getting into the technical part of stuff, we're just going to go straight into the results of her autopsy. So the surgeon who performed the autopsy, his name was Frederick Newbar. And um, one of the most noticeable things about uh, Elizabeth's body when she was found was that somebody had carved what's called a Glasgow smile, or I've seen other people refer to it as a Chelsea grin, um, into her face, which means that she had two upwards-moving incisions from either corner of her mouth, which had she lived, the scars would have appeared to look like a smile. Um, I feel like there's a creepy pasta that circulated on the internet for a while, I can't think of what his name was, but he had, uh, uh, the creepiest big eyes and this weird, like, smile situation, and I do remember that being, um, you know, something that always was pointed out, and I, it, it looks like that. If you know the creepypasta I'm talking about, like, please feel free to send it to me so I can remark on it in the next episode, um, but that is what this image would look like had she lived. Anyway, the scars had extended three inches from each corner of her mouth and per the surgeon, it would have caused Elizabeth to go into shock um, had she been alive and likely would have made her go unconscious. Um, But he was also able to determine that it was likely she had been bound and hung upside down at some point during her capture he also noted that she had three deep cuts on her forehead over her right eye, and he believed that they were caused by a severe blow with a blunt object. Um, however, the blow did not fracture her skull. They also noted that there were ligature marks um, around her legs, her wrists, her neck, and one on her right thigh, which would indicate to them that she was likely bound, um, but, you know, considering that they found ligature marks on her neck, they were able to determine that they did not believe she had been strangled. So little trigger warning. This part gets a little gross. Um, I read in Black Dahlia, the story of America's most gruesome murder, um, which is a book by Roger Harrington, uh, that there were some accounts that said that Based off the autopsy, they found that Short had been force-fed feces and pubic hair and that she had had pieces of her own flesh that had been placed into her rectum and vagina and her uterus was just completely gone, just missing entirely. Now, all of the damage, considering including the, um, you know, the grin and the complete you know, dissection of her midsection, um, the surgeon was able to determine that the actual cause of death was likely the shock and a hemorrhaging. Um, and he also was able to determine that he, in his opinion, believed she had been dead for about 10 hours um, by the time she had been found on January 15th. He also was able to determine that her, um, you know, complete dissection of her upper half from her lower half had been done post-mortem and so that's better um you know knowing that she wasn't awake for that kind of trauma it was also noted that the killer had removed one of her breasts and like we explained earlier he, he, they heard her blood had been drained there was almost no blood um It was noted that the dissection was very clean and the cuts um, that were made just above the waist. None of her organs, considering all of this, had been harmed or cut through, um, and the incisions and cut of her spine was very precise. And, you know, on top of this, her body had been thoroughly cleaned, like we said, before they found her. So all of this mounting evidence led investigators to believe that it had to be somebody with some kind of medical knowledge and background who committed this crime. So I was actually leading into a specific point um, with all of that information leading up to it, but when I actually just went back and Re listen to it. There's something that's sticking out in my head about more than anything the ligature marks. So it would make sense, obviously, to have her bound by her wrists and her ankles if somebody was, you know, doing these horrible, unspeakable things to her. Maybe even her neck to keep her head still. Um, you know, if it, the idea being that they made that, um, you know, Glasgow smile on her face while she was still alive. But I couldn't wrap my head around why there would also be a ligature mark on just the one thigh. It just—it was something about it stuck out to me. And the more I thought about it, and I don't know if maybe this helps to kind of like pursue that whole... It's definitely got to be somebody who's involved in medicine theory. But you do have the arteries and the pulse points in your thighs. And I do wonder if maybe... When And we're going to get real dark here for a second, so buckle up. But I'm wondering if maybe, like, when they drained her, when they were dissecting her, do you think that maybe they put, like, a, a tourniquet around her one thigh to kind of speed along the bleeding out process, maybe? Like, I, I just... I'm so stuck on that, and I don't know why. I know it's such a minute part in the grand scheme of this, but to me, that would just lead me to be more confident that this is probably somebody with some kind of medical background who would know that you have, like, those pulse and pressure points in your thighs, and if they had dissected her in half by, you know, putting pressure onto that point, could, in theory, if I'm correct, which I may not be somebody, if you think you know more, please feel free to let me know. I'm, I'm happy to listen. If they were to put that pressure point tourniquet on while she's already dissected, it might help speed along the process of bleeding her out. Because remember, that, that's got to take a long, that's got to be a long process. And she had been left in that lot 10 out. she'd been killed 10 hours before they found her in that lot. So in that time frame, she was, you know, killed, bled out, packed up in a vehicle somehow, some way. Her body moved from wherever the murder location was to that empty lot, dumped back out while nobody was you know, seen or noted to be seen at that crime scene. So I don't know. It's such a minor thing. I get that, but it just keeps sticking out of my brain. Anyway, we'll go on. The reason I was going to leading up to them believing this was somebody with medical knowledge, um, is that there is one particular suspect who really shines when it comes to that narrative. Um, but the uh, l a. p. d was so convinced that this had to be somebody with medical knowledge that they had actually interviewed about 300 medical students uh, at the time in the area. Um, again, it didn't come to fruition to for them, obviously, we still don't have a uh you know answer seventy some years later, but it's uh it's it's definitely a sticking point that's that's for sure. I do want to circle back for a second because around the same time that the LAPD started interviewing the medical and um, apparently also dental school students um, and collecting fingerprints and all that, um, it also came out that there was an LAPD officer by the name of Merrill McBride who was almost positive that she had seen Elizabeth on January 14th at the bus station. She said that Elizabeth was just completely hysterical and sobbing and telling her that someone wanted to kill her and that she needed protection. And she said that Elizabeth told her she was afraid of a jealous ex-Marine. She said that it was about 10.30 p.m. and she was waiting on a bus from San Diego because someone was coming to meet her. Um. I'm I'm just kind of interjecting my own opinion here, but given the history, it wouldn't be outlandish to think she was going to meet Red. Now, Red admitted to seeing her last on January 9th, so who knows? But um, apparently McBride convinced uh, Elizabeth to go to a bar and just kind of have a drink and calm down. So they went, and uh, Elizabeth had apparently been speaking with two men and a woman at the time and eventually the officer told elizabeth like hey you, you really should go home um but elizabeth refused and explained that she had to go back to the bus station and wait on that bus to arrive and supporting this claim that it could have very well been read who she was waiting to see um the lapd actually received A handwritten letter on January 19th, and it was said to be from a man in Newark, New Jersey, Um, and he wrote it actually addressed to the FBI, and the letter was signed by Arthur Strange. And in the letter, he said that the killer was a white ex-Marine between 28 and 30 years old with red hair. He said they were of Irish and English descent and was 5 foot 10 inches tall, about 160 pounds. He also told police to check all camps and hospitals in California and said that if they were meticulous with their searching, they could ideally find the killer within two weeks. Um, He signed the note saying, I hope you find this helps the police. Now, based off of the description of Red, this very much matches what it would be theorized he looked like. However, police never really could explain how this particular strange guy, Arthur Strange, uh, as a matter of fact, (laughs) um, no pun intended, had known so much about this man from all the way on the other side of the country. Because remember, he was from New Jersey. So how could he possibly known that you know they? How could he possibly known it was red? from all the way on the other side of the country unless he had some kind of a relationship a friendship of some sort with red and you know even the lapd was never able to connect the dots and figure out how you know this arthur strange could have known this information but we will talk more about um some of the weird circumstances with red we'll touch back on that a little later. Um, Let's finish out talking, though, about some of the events that happened after Elizabeth's body was recovered. So according to biographics.org, apparently a few days after the murder, a man who was claiming himself to be the killer had actually called the Los Angeles examiner's office and um, wanted to speak with the editor. He told him that he was disappointed with how the case was being handled. He claimed that he was eventually going to turn himself in because, you know, all killers do that in the end, right? Um, And... He wanted to let the police pursue him a little further. I don't know. I guess he liked the chase. Uh, Can relate. But anyway, lastly, the caller had promised to confirm that he was, in fact, the real murderer because he was going to send some of Elizabeth Short's belongings. Um, So, you know, that did actually happen. On January twenty fourth, um, the examiner actually received a package that contained Elizabeth's birth certificate, photos, business cards, and it had an address book um, among these possessions with the name Mark Hansen um, on the cover. This package also included a letter that had like the um, magazine cutout. Um, letters clippings and it read quote los angeles examiner and other los angeles papers here is dahlia's belongings letter to follow um they did try to look at this evidence for any kind of fingerprints maybe that they could match and unfortunately all of the items had actually been wiped down with gasoline so there were no fingerprints to be recovered by any means It was said, though, there was a partial fingerprint that was found on the envelope that was um, holding all of these items, but apparently it had been damaged, and so they were never able to analyze that um, fingerprint conclusively. So that was on January 24th. On January 26th, uh, they received another letter. This time, it was a handwritten note, and it read, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. The letter had included a location, and police have waited at this location, assuming that this meant the person was going to go to that location, wait for police to come and retrieve him or her. Probably him. But anyway, Uh, police went to the appointed time um, and place, and... The guy never showed. So, not long afterwards, the killer sent another letter. This time, again, made out of, like, um, cut-and-paste magazine letters to the examiner. Again, keep sending them to the examiner. um, That said, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. So, again, between all of these letters and everything... Everything was wiped down clean with gasoline, so there were no fingerprints that could be lifted off of any of this evidence. It was said that at one point, um, the LAPD had like 700 investigators working this act, like case actively, and they had interviewed over 150 potential suspects. Um... They also, in regards to all this, heard sixty confessions during the initial investigation. Um, none of them were considered to be legitimate because you know why why do these wackadoos want to take credit for these horrible, horrible crimes um, that they did not commit like I, I i get I get that these guys are like unhinged and want attention and they'll take it no matter whatever means they can get it but like a a grisly disgusting gruesome murder like come on like do something else with your time like something productive god damn Anyway, since the initial investigation, um, there have been a reported 500 more confessions over the years, yet nobody has been tried or charged with the crime as to date. So on a really good um webpage I found called Forensic Society Sci- ForensicScienceSociety.com. Um they actually broke down and listed all of the evidence and bullet points. So I'm just gonna you know, read it for you now, so that way it kind of brings us up to speed on what evidence exactly the LAPD and the FBI at this point had to work through. So the body had been severed in the same manner as what was called a hemicorporectomy, um, which is a surgical procedure that cuts through the second and third vertebrae so as to avoid cutting through bones. So, you know, that was the clean and half cut of her body that we discussed before. Um, As we also discussed before, the body was washed and, um, you know, very little blood found at the scene. One of the other things that I found on this um, bullet point list that I did not read in any of the other areas, which is a little surprising now... But there was evidence apparently suggesting that Elizabeth had been raped. However, there was no sperm or any DNA found um, to link that to a suspect. So that kind of points me a little further towards one particular suspect, but we'll get into that. Um, We have the envelope that was sent uh, in January that had been cleaned with gasoline, um, where they weren't able to identify the sender's fingerprints or DNA on the packages. Um, Police had also found at the crime scene a handbag and a shoe that both belonged to Elizabeth, um, but they also had been wiped down with gasoline, so again... No prints. No DNA. Um, There were also reports of a black sedan that had been seen, like, kind of idling near the lot where Elizabeth's body had been left um, the night before. Uh, I did read some other points where um, they think that maybe the van could be tied to two of the suspects. And then I read another area where it said that, like... um, They actually got in contact with the owner of the van, and they were able to clear him of any suspicions. So, I don't know. We'll touch on that more with the suspects. Um, And then the last piece of evidence that had come to light was the address book, um, which had the name Mark Hansen embossed on it. So, that kind of lines up all of the evidence, and... Yeah, I I think that kind of covers all of that. So, I... I'm going to do a separate episode. I know you guys are probably so thrilled over that. You have to wait on the suspects themselves because I feel like anybody who's heard this case in the past knows that there is at least one suspect that is really a big name, um, definitely came into the spotlight like a little over a decade ago. Um, A lot of people do think he's... Green for this crime. I, I don't think he's not, but I do have um, mixed opinions after doing my own research, and I feel like it's almost too good to be true, if you will. Um, so, I'm gonna do a whole second episode. We're gonna discuss the suspects. Now, there were only three legitimate suspects. That I have found like over and over and over again everywhere that I have looked. So these suspects were Red Manley, who we already discussed, um, Dr. George Hodell, and then the last one is named Leslie Dillon. Sorry, I had to pause to find my notebook where I had the name written down, um, which I actually did not ever hear about Leslie Dillon uh too much I guess that's a name that's come out over the last few years a little more widespread in regards to this case so I am going to stop the episode here uh I'm not going to make you guys wait a long time for the episode. It will be out sometime before the end of this week. Um, It's just a matter of me really polishing up the research I have to do on these suspects. Like, there's a whole audiobook that I am planning to listen to in regards to George Hodel, and then there is another book about, you know, um, the case presented for Leslie Dillon, not as much uh, going on with Red. However, I have some suspicions about him myself just off of my own research that I kind of looked at and did. But again, we're gonna go into all that next week because it is a lot to unpack when you're looking at the suspect list. Um, I mean, George Hodel, just looking at him as a suspect could easily take like half an hour or more based off of his very extensive disgusting lifestyle. Um, not to mention, you know, the other two suspects that are thrown in there as well. So yeah, we'll get into that more next week. I want to really thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Um, I know I've been a little tricky with nailing down a great schedule with all of this. It's a little tough when you're a mom and you work full time and you're married and you know I've talked about this before it's it's hard it's hard to balance life and everything else and you know maybe other people can do it a lot easier than I can and if you can I have nothing but the utmost respect and props for you I just have a very hard time finding the time to do so but this is a passion for me I love doing this I love researching I love talking about true crime and the paranormal and spooky stuff and all of that So I want to keep pushing and keep trying to do this. I want to do it for me. I want to do it for you guys. So we're we're just going to keep pushing. And we're going to do the best we can. And, you know, in there somewhere, I have to keep reminding myself, though, that mental health matters. And it's important to make sure that mentally and emotionally I am okay to be doing this. So with all of that being said, I hope you enjoyed listening. I can't wait to do the episode uh, discussing all of the suspects with you. I think it's going to be very enlightening to anybody who is new to the case or has heard the case in the past. Um, Because, again, I've definitely heard this case for years. I've heard the whole George Hodel theories in regards to it. Um, But I've never heard of this Leslie Dillon prior to looking into all of this. So I am excited to get to work on that and I hope to give you guys a really nice episode um, going through and detailing all of those things. In the interim, I am looking for some suggestions for any paranormal uh, locations that we can cover. I know a lot of them and I do like Google searches of stuff. But I would love to have some suggestions on what maybe you guys want to hear. So as always, you can email me at themacomillennial at gmail.com. Um, you can reach out on my TikTok, also named The Maca Millennial. There is also a Facebook page, again, The Macomillennial, because what else would I go by at this point? It's not like you can call me uh, Sandy. but. <laughs> So yeah, I hope you guys really enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. And we will chat again soon. Later, gators.